Hey, welcome to Seven Days. So this podcast keeps kind of uh, evolving as things go. Originally, I would pick a task to do for the week and do do it each day for the week and like report on it. And then that became far too hard to keep up with, so I switched it to uh, just sticking with the number seven. Like here's seven this or seven that, seven ways to look at some situation. Now that is also becoming too hard to keep up with. Seven is too many. Some of these episodes are so long. But I don't want to stop doing this. I like this podcast just because I do it every week. It comes out every week, regardless of how valuable the topic is or how many people give a fuck about whatever I'm talking about each week. Just that I have to do it each week. I really like It's like my little weird laboratory. Like, I just have to do something. So I'm going to stick with this podcast in that way. Now seven days is only going to mean that it comes out every week. <laughs> That's it. I might still stick with the seven sometimes. I kind of like that. But if I don't have time or I don't have anything that makes sense with seven, then, uh, then that's gone. So this week I was reading a book called The Antidote by Oliver Berkman that uh, my online friend Ben recommended to me. And uh, it is great. I really recommend it. Again, that's The Antidote by Oliver Berkman. And it's about how positive thinking, you know, have, um, there's like a downside to trying to force your thoughts into a good place or force yourself to be positive and all of the weird psychological problems that can come of that and just how miserable it can make you because it's so hard to do because uh, basically the thrust of it is that your thoughts are, it's like how you can't control what you hear and you can't control what you smell your thoughts are the same way. Like we have this way of thinking of our thoughts as us, but it's not true. Like our, our sight isn't us, our hearing isn't us, our heartbeat isn't us, and our thoughts are similar to that. They are very much out of our control. And thinking of it that way, thinking of yourself as yet another abstraction, another step away from and behind your thoughts, is really great. It's like, I mean, I guess that's essentially what Zen and uh, meditation is all about. It's really, the idea is just to see your thoughts and just accept them and not try to control them. Like, you know, I still, I would like to have happier thoughts. I would like to think better about things. I would like to not have bad thoughts all the time, <laughs> but, but I don't have them all the time. It only seems like I do or that I have a big problem with this because I'm, you know, I was getting really invested in trying not to have these thoughts. So every time I have them, it seems like some kind of failure. And when you look at it in a, a more relaxed way as just, just a process that's just happening in your mind, and it's much easier to realize how small a part of the day those kinds of negativity thoughts really are. They're not that big a deal at all. And it's just, man, it's such a comforting notion because it fits so much better, I think, with how I am anyway, how my, my normal inclination is. And, and yeah, it doesn't seem like some big failure. Like, I would always even think, like, I hope the last day of my life is a good day. I hope I'm not miserable and feeling crappy about stuff and people and whatever. And I, I feel like if I can get more comfortable with just taking a backseat to 
my thoughts, like not over identifying my thoughts as myself. It just doesn't seem like that's such a big deal. It's like I can just accept how a human organism is and how it works. And I love this idea. It's really great. So I recommend this book a lot. It's, it's really interesting. But specifically, I'm going to read from a chapter that it's not even the best, most useful chapter at all. It's just the most, uh, it's the most story-like one. It's the one that invokes the most imagery to me. It's about this notion of memento mori that I heard that term from Colin Marshall, the guy who uh, interviewed me for Notebook on Cities and Culture. He reviewed XO, my podcast XO, years ago, and he used that phrase, and I looked it up, and it's a Latin phrase that means remember your mortality. And man, I was like, yeah, that's true. That's what I do. Like so many of these XOs are about people that are dead. And that's something I think about all the time. And, uh, and it's nice to know that it's not just like, oh, you're just negative. Oh, you're just modeling. It's like, it's okay. It's okay to be that way. It might even be positive to be that way because you're not denying stuff and you're uh, aware of really the value of life if you try to focus on the fact that it's not going to last very long. It doesn't have to be this big downer of a thing. It can actually be a good thing. It can really help you feel better and more positive in a weird way. So this chapter in particular is about the Mexican Day of the Dead celebrations. Just that their culture is, uh, you know, they don't whitewash death like we do with Halloween. They don't just ignore it. Like they really try to integrate it for at least a little bit of each year into remembering your relatives and, and contemplating that you will be dead someday. And uh, I just think it's really interesting. It's a really neat little chapter of this book. So one more time, it's called The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, which is not really accurate to uh, the tone of the book. You know, I think they're just trying to make it stand out on the bookshelves. But The Antidote by Oliver Berkman. I got it from the library. Use your local library, kids. It's got all kinds of books in it. Short book, 200 pages long. Very interesting. I recommend it a lot. So for this week's episode, I'm just going to read from the chapter Memento Mori. And of course, if you enjoy this, this podcast comes out every Monday at keithcourage.com and uh, it's on iTunes and stuff. So uh, thank you for listening. At one point during the course of the 200,000-line Indian spiritual epic, the Mataharata, the warrior prince Yudhisthira is being cross-questioned about the meaning of existence by a nature spirit on the banks of a lake, which is the sort of thing that happens in the Mataharata all the time. What is the most wondrous thing in the world, the spirit wants to know? Yudhisthira's reply has become one of the poem's best-known lines, the most wondrous thing in the world is that although every day innumerable creatures go to the abode of death, still man thinks that he is immortal. Death is everywhere, unavoidable and uniquely terrifying. Yet as long as it's not impinging on us immediately, through recent bereavement or a life-threatening illness or a narrowly survived accident, Many of us manage to avoid all thoughts of our own mortality for months, even years at a time. 
The more you reflect on this, the stranger it seems. We're perfectly capable of feeling acute self-pity about more minor predicaments at home or at work on a daily basis. Yet the biggest predicament of all goes by, for the most part, not consciously worried about. At bottom, wrote Freud, sweepingly as usual, but in this case persuasively, no one believes in his own death. After wrestling for a while with these ideas, I decided to take a trip to Mexico. I had suspected for some time that this would prove necessary if I was really going to understand the role of mortality awareness in daily life. I had often seen it claimed that Mexico had a unique attitude towards death. By common agreement, it was one of the few countries that still had an active tradition of memento mori, rituals and customs designed to encourage regular reflections on mortality. And according to several recent international surveys, it was also one of the happiest, perhaps even the happiest or second happiest nation in the world, in fact, depending on the measures used. The most famous example of this attitude toward death is the annual celebration known as the Day of the Dead, when Mexicans toast those who have died, and death itself, with copious quantities of tequila and bread in the shape of human remains. People build shrines in their homes, throng city squares, and conduct all-night vigils at the graves of deceased relatives. But this way of thinking runs deeper than a national holiday each November. As the celebrated Mexican essayist Octavio Paz writes in his book The Labyrinth of Solitude, the word death is not pronounced in New York, in Paris, in London, because it burns the lips. The Mexican, in contrast, is familiar with death, jokes about it, caresses it, sleeps with it, celebrates it. It is one of his favorite toys and his most steadfast love. This more intimate relationship with mortality was not always so unusual. Such traditions date at least to ancient Rome. There, according to legend, generals who had been victorious in battle would instruct a slave to follow behind as they paraded through the streets. The slave's task was to keep repeating, for the general's benefit, a warning against hubris. Memento mori, remember you shall die. Much later, in Christian Europe, memento mori became a staple of the visual arts. Symbols of death appeared frequently in still-life paintings sometimes including skulls intended to represent those of the artist's patrons. Public clocks featured automata representing death, and sometimes the Latin slogan, Vulnerant omnes ultima necat, as a reminder of the effect of the passing minutes. Every hour wounds, and the last one kills. The specific motivation for contemplating mortality differed from era to era and culture to culture. In the ancient world, it had much to do with remembering to savor life as if it were a delicious meal. For later Christians, it was often more a case of remembering to behave well in anticipation of the final judgment. I'd been especially intrigued to hear about one contemporary example of death awareness in Mexican daily life. Santa Muerte was the name of a new religion, according to its followers, or a satanic cult in the eyes of the Catholic Church, which worshipped death itself the figure known as La Santa Muerte, or Saint Death. The movement had sprung up several decades ago in the toughest neighborhoods of Mexico City, among prostitutes and drug dealers and the very poor, people for whom both the Mexican government and the Catholic Church had failed to provide. Instead, they prayed to Santa Muerte for protection from death, for a gentle death or sometimes for death to their enemies. Now, as a result of immigration, Santa Muerte had spread to parts of the United States, 
It was also said that some of Mexico's most powerful businessmen and politicians kept secret death shrines at home. And although many of the followers of Saint Death were law-abiding Mexicans, they had marched in the streets to protest the government's attempts to characterize the movement as nothing but a band of criminals, it was nonetheless true that it had become the religion of choice of the narco-traficantes, the ruthless drug-smuggling gangs of Mexico's north. At the movement's main shrine in the barrio of Tepito in Mexico City, where a life-size model of a skeleton laden with jewelry stood in a glass case on a side street, some of the country's most violent men came to leave offerings of dollar bills, cigarettes, and marijuana. Whatever other significance the movement had, being a follower of Santa Muerte seemed to entail devoting oneself to an especially extreme form of memento mori, to organizing one's life around the omnipresence of death. In a world of facts, writes Paz, death is merely one more fact. But since it is such a disagreeable fact, contrary to all our concepts and to the very meaning of our lives, the philosophy of progress pretends to make it disappear like a magician palming a coin. In Mexico, Santa Morte was where you turned if the circumstances of your life made this sleight of hand impossible, if the constant fear of violent death removed the option of ignoring your mortality. I did visit Tepito during my time in Mexico, a few days before the Day of the Dead itself, though it didn't prove the most successful of assignments. I'd been warned not to get there by hailing a taxi from the street because of the risk of kidnapping. As a reporter, I have no real thirst for danger, and arguably I shouldn't have gone at all. Foreigners, for obvious reasons, never go to Tepito, someone advised, in an internet forum that I probably shouldn't have consulted. Only idiots and the ignorant visit Tepito, warned someone else. A few days earlier, an armed gang had gunned down six people on a street corner there, in the middle of the day. In the newspapers, it was reported that the police had written off whole sections of it as too dangerous to bother trying to patrol. A filmmaker based in Mexico City who'd made a documentary about Tepito declined to accompany me there, citing safety concerns, and a restaurateur in a smarter part of the city had cheerily passed along what she claimed was a well-known saying, in Tepito, even the rats carried guns. My walk into Tepito was, therefore, if nothing else, a pretty good exercise in memento mori for myself. I set off for the heart of the city in the middle of the morning, through shopping streets and Mexico City's business district, then along bigger highways lined with scrappy, busy markets until the streets grew narrower and the buildings smaller again, and I found myself in Tepito. The core of the neighborhood was another cacophonous market. Tepito is notorious as a center for the sale of counterfeit and stolen goods, but in my search for the Santa Muerte Shrine, I soon left the main roads and plunged into the deserted back streets where rats scuttled from towering piles of rubbish. I hurried past darkened doorways, growing nervous. In the event, the scene at the shrine itself was festive. Around twenty people were waiting in an orderly line to pay their respects to the skeleton, which was resplendent in purple and orange necklaces and a lace shawl. Some carried their own smaller statuettes or bottles of spirits to leave as a gift. One or two blew cigar or cigarette smoke over the skeleton when they came to the front of the line, and what I later learned was a rite of spiritual cleansing. The devotees chatted and laughed. Men and women, elderly women and muscular young men, some with newborn babies and toddlers in tow. Having been unable to persuade a translator to come with me to the barrio, I was forced to rely on my terrible Spanish to start a conversation with a woman carrying a foot-high death statue under her arm. Several other people in the line turned to stare. She didn't want to talk. 
The atmosphere in my immediate vicinity quickly turned less festive. I was intruding. Besides, it was quite possible that some of those around me wouldn't want to talk to any reporter or any stranger. People come to Santa Muerte, according to the Mexican essayist Homero Aradigi, to ask her, protect me tonight, because I am going to kidnap or assault somebody. It was a struggle to imagine a life in which death played quite so central a role. Then again, the great truth that was underlined by the scene at the shrine, where the generations mingled as they waited in line, was that death was a subject in which everyone had an inescapable interest. As a pale, skinny Englishman, though, I was prominently out of place, and a muscular man in a black sleeveless vest who seemed to be standing guard over the shrine appeared to have noticed this. He glared at me. There was as much amusement as menace in his glare, since it was embarrassingly plain that I posed him no physical threat. Still, he tilted his head in such a way as to indicate the direction in which he believed I should now proceed, away from the shrine and back to the main street. It was shortly after this that I made the decision to leave Tepito. And then this chapter ends with, uh, he goes to the actual Day of the Dead celebrations themselves, and uh, his driver, this guy Francisco, takes him to a cemetery where a bunch of people are drinking and talking and just hanging out around these corpses, well, around these graves. And I like the way this ends. In our tradition, observes the writer Victor Landa, who was raised in Mexico, people die three deaths. The first is when our bodies cease to function, when our hearts no longer beat of their own accord, when our gaze no longer has depth or weight, when the space we occupy slowly loses its meaning. The second death comes when the body is lowered into the ground. The third death, the most definitive death, is when there is no one left alive to remember us. Death was omnipresent that night in the cemetery, and yet, precisely as a consequence of that, the third kind of death was absent. An entire town was remembering, and remembering too their own mortality, which differed from their dead relatives only in the sense that it had not claimed them yet. You need not engage in cemetery vigils to practice memento mori, however. You can start much smaller. The psychologist Russ Harris suggests a simple exercise. Imagine you are 80 years old, assuming you're not 80 already, that is, if you are, you'll have to pick an older age, and then complete the sentence, I wish I'd spent more time on, and I wish I'd spent less time on. This turns out to be a surprisingly effective way to achieve mortality awareness in short order. Things fall into place. It becomes far easier to figure out what specifically you might do in order to focus on life's flavors so as to improve your chances of reaching death having lived life as fully and as deeply as possible. This kind of smaller habit may actually be the most powerful form of memento mori, for it is precisely through such mundane and unassuming rituals that we can best hope to enfold an awareness of death into the daily rhythms of life. What lingered in my mind for months after Mexico, in any case, was not the loud celebration of death, though I had seen some of that in central Mexico City. Instead, it was the sense I had absorbed of relaxing alongside mortality, of comfortably coexisting with it, of the companionship of life and death. 
Before we left the village that night, sometime before two in the morning, I noticed an elderly woman sitting alone on a folding chair near one of the cemetery's boundary walls. She was wrapped in a shawl and appeared to be talking softly to a headstone. Tentatively, I approached her. Interrupting felt wrong, but she wasn't hostile. Smiling, she nodded at the ledge beside the grave, inviting me to sit. So I sat. The strains of the mariachi band drifted over from the other side of the cemetery. Some families, I noticed, had built small wood fires to keep warm. A few feet away, Francisco clapped his arms around himself in an effort to generate heat. I looked out over the cemetery, strewn with marigolds and crowded with huddled figures. Beyond its edges, no lights illuminated the blackness, but inside the fires and the hundreds of flickering candles lent the night a kind of coziness, despite the chill. The musicians carried on playing. Death was in the air, and all was well.